And that is a promise of God, a declaration that His Word does what it is intended to do. So if I were to ask you a question this morning, if I were to say, what's wrong? If I would just ask that, we could all answer. We'd all have something to say, right? From a standing of, from a biblical standing, I think the answer to that is nothing. Nothing. Because God is sovereign, so nothing's out of place. Nothing is in a place that it shouldn't be. No experience is in a place that it shouldn't be, and vice versa. No relationship is in a place that God has not established. <clears throat> no fear or sin has come upon you or temptation that Christ has not already defeated. See what happens when we think about this, though, is we... It sounds good, and we're in fellowship together, and everybody's able to go, Amen. We do believe that. We do rest in that. Singing the song, Be Still My Soul, is one of my favorite hymns in the entire book. Because it is the struggle that I deal with the most. Being still. Faith, by definition, is resting because of confidence granted to us by the Spirit of God in the promises of God. And that's a short answer. It looks to that which is unseen, which is unknown, which is non-tangible in our experiences with this present world to trust in that which is invisibly promised to us by God, who has made Himself visible through the person of Jesus Christ through whom we see the fullness of all that He ever has been or ever will be. That's what the word glory means, y'all. Y'all need to don't forget that. Go back to John if you want to, John 1, and look at those sermons. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. We are still able to appear upon that through the lens of Scripture, the Word of God alone. This written book, this collection of letters and books and writings, God supernaturally works through to show us Himself. And when we see Him, we rest. And when we're resting, we have joy. And when we have joy, we're thinking about others. And when we're thinking about others, we're serving Christ. The opposite of that is to serve ourselves, and to think about ourselves, and to think about our problems. And yes, beloved, we have to deal with our problems. We have to think about things. There are problems we can't just put on the God is sovereign shelf and walk away. There are problems that require footwork and head work and leg work and heart work and heartache. But the resolution of these problems are on the shelf of sovereignty. There is no other way but God to work these things out for His purposes so that our joy is complete in Him, knowing that He has all of it. But see, it sounds like, it sounds so cliche. Because we were learning as children, I was thinking about a couple of songs in my childhood this morning, because the text that I read is so prominent from my from my childhood. I mean, when I say childhood, I mean my grandmother and great-grandmothers reading this text to me about the Word of God would not return void. And I was thinking of some songs, and one of the songs that we sang as kids, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands. Remember that? 
Maranatha's Greatest Hits, 1978. The Hosanna Singers, or whoever they might be. Singing Americans. I mean, there's a whole bunch of the Southern Gospel groups as kids, and they'd come to town, and then you'd have to do church during the week. I mean, that's terrible. And I'm not advocating for any of their Gospels, because we don't know what they were. <laughs> these, these, these industries and things. When you take the Psalms, or you take Proverbs, or you take Isaiah, or you take Scripture, and you put music to it, it's true. I don't care who's singing it. The devil himself is singing it. It's true. But we think that it's placating to some nonsensical, childish thing to say God has it all in His hands. That's the point I was getting to. And then I ran the rabbit right out of the building. <laughs> Chased him right on out with a broom. Speaking of brooms... And then we think, well, well, I'm an adult now. I'm a, I'm a grown-up, or I'm doing adulting, as some of the millennials would say. I'm adulting. I don't know what that means. You know, my, my dad's like, son, you got two legs, God, clean the yard. You know, I'm six. I don't care. You can shoot a shotgun, you can drive a lawnmower. You know, that kind of stuff. But we think, we're wiser and that is true, but wisdom would say, all the stuff I know doesn't matter in the face of sovereignty. Well, you know, we, what can I do? Well, I'll tell you what we can do. We can get leaves, and we can cover our nakedness with our own leaves. We can get our friends together and all their spiritual wisdom, and we can build a tower to heaven. That's what we can do. And none of it will work. But we'll work, 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 and none of it will work. Beloved, what's wrong? That's what's wrong. That's really the only thing that's wrong in the world today with God's people. The only thing that's wrong with the world today with God's people is that we are not resting or, nor charged to rest in the sufficiency of His power and understanding and knowing that He has purposed all things according to the his will according to our joy and the shared glory that we will have with Christ in the end. And didn't that make it simpler? That's how I thought when I was a kid. We say. The same thing we thought, you know, Cookie Monster was real. And Big Bird and all these others. There was no man behind the puppet on that. It's a real thing. But beloved, that's really what faith does. It brings us back to a childlikeness in our resolve, see. That's the work of God the Spirit to bring us to a place where we are letting go of the work. And we are resting to know wisely what work we are to be doing. And Jesus, in John 6, is talking to the masses right after He, uh, you know, after he feeds them miraculously. 20 plus thousand people. And they come after Him for more food. And they're there that day, that season, for that week, to be part of the festival so that they can work correctly to worship God accurately to please Him and to feel good about themselves in the presence of God. Look, God, I showed up. I dressed the right way. I came. I know the right stuff. I'm speaking the right prayer. 
singing the right songs, I'm giving the right tithes, I'm burning the right thing, I'm sacrificing the right stuff. It's all good. Now, this is going to lead us right into Genesis 4, if you haven't picked up on that. That's what we're doing. It's what's wrong with the world. We're not resting in God's work. We're still trying to work with Him, and He cares not about working with us. He worked for Himself, for us, and applies all of His work to us as He sees fit. There are no triggers on our account that causes God to apply stuff to us. That is a historical error. And it will always lead men back to the work clock. Punching the clock, walking in a way that makes them feel that God is pleased with them. When God is pleased because He has slaughtered His Son in our place. And if that's not your good news, beloved, whew, we might need to change the moniker, beloved. We need to rest. And in resting in our salvation and God's sovereignty, then we are told to work. And that work is very simple. First, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and to be a little bit superlative, with all of our strength, with all of our thoughts, mind, all of our heart, affections, all of our soul, our, everything we are, all of our strength, everything we do. And of equal importance, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Then we see the apostolic writing and we see all the letters written to the saints who are secure in the work of God, not their faith. Understand this, beloved. The Scripture does not teach that you are confident in your faith. You are confident by faith in God's merciful promise in Christ. There is no other language. Faith in one's faith is death. Because that is a work of the flesh. And beloved, you may have good faith today. God is good. He's strong. He's going to see me through this. Christ has satisfied His wrath. I'm a child of God. There's no one that could tell me anything different. Get in the car. You're going to hell before you get to McDonald's in your own mind. You see? That's how it, that's how it goes. <laughs> and don't lie. We're all there. Especially if there's a Burger King desire and a McDonald's desire, and I don't care where we go, well, let's go here. I don't like that. Oh, I'm sick of this. I mean, you know. My wife and I haven't driven or ridden to church together in 20 years. So that we don't, that's a joke, fight about where we're going to eat. We rest in the work of God. I want to remind us too, we see the, the six days of creation and the last day of resting, the Sabbat, Sabbath, the day of the Lord. The first time we don't see a sundown. Some people would argue, see, if Adam and Eve had not fallen, there would have never been another day. And that's true. But not in a, not in a real sense because God had not purposed that. He'd already created the world to have a cycle. The, the globe was spinning at its first resolution, revolution. 
And there was day and there was night. And there was morning and evening. But the last day is no evening at all. And still has not gone down. You understand that? So the seventh day is not stopped for the beloved of God. It's a picture. That's why we are supposed to understand the first part of Genesis as an illustration, not an explanation. And if that offends us, beloved, we need to open our eyes. Because otherwise we're usurping the picture of Christ altogether. We're defaming God's glorious revelation for man's understanding and wisdom of discovery. When Paul says, no man seeks after God. But we see what the Scripture has taught us. And last week I re-emphasized the point that God's uniting Himself to His people through His Son, through the flesh of Christ, as He gave out of the flesh of the man a woman of His own kind to Himself. Christ has been given a people, has become like them, and through His flesh He has been given a people of Himself, for Himself. They are righteous as He is righteous because they are clothed in Himself, you see. These pictures are important because God is creating, God's Word is decreeing, God's decrees are producing, and the production of God's work is always perfect. Even when the Word of God goes forth, just like this morning, and someone goes, I'm done, and they're never going to listen to what I have to say again. Well, they're shutting the Lord out, not James. Sure, I have a lot to say, but if I say the truth of God's Word, if my exposition is right, there is no charge. None whatsoever. Just like with you. We can have a lot of thoughts and philosophies and things that we think about and things that we ponder, but when it comes to saying, thus saith the Lord, we are expressing that which God has clearly expressed. And people don't like that. And it used to bother me. Well, why? And then the Lord helped me settle my heart in the midst of that conundrum by realizing that what He means when, Isaiah, when He speaks through Isaiah's writing is that when someone does not see that it was His intention to begin with. When someone cannot rest, it's because God intended for them not to rest that moment. When someone does not come to believe, it's because God has not intended for them to believe. You know, the promise of grace in the context of letting go of wrath in Egypt, I want you to hear this. The promise of justice breaks us. The reprieve pulls out the haughtiness of our true nature. Boy, if you don't do this, I'm going to whip your behind. You ever heard that, guys, gals? I mean, if you were raised by a southern parent, you probably heard that. And then we go, oh, I don't want to die. And then when we get the reprieve, we get a little haughty. I got away with it. I'll do what I want to next time. So, The Word of God, when given, even in a warning, is not that which softens the heart. Most of the time, it 
causes rebellion. God said, don't eat of these trees lest you die, for when you eat of it, you will die. Prophetically, Christ said those words to Adam. And that law, that command, could never be kept by a creature. So the word of the Lord went forth to Adam, and it produced death. Just like the law goes forth and everywhere the law is preached to men, death is the outcome. When the Scripture says that Jesus was subject to the law, that means He became subject to its consequence. And so today, let's look at the Word of the Lord. Now, the serpent, verse 1 of chapter 3, was more crafty than any piece of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, <clears throat> Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You are not going to die, surely not going to die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and she saw it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was be desired to make one wise. What does she what does it say? She took of its fruit, and she ate it, and she gave some to Adam, who was standing there with her, and he ate it. And then both of their eyes were open. Then they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate it. And he said, The woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, The snake you made deceived me and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, What have you done? I mean, you know... <laughs> You get on down to the dirt, and the dirt's going, ugh. And this is where we're going to focus our time today. The Lord said to the serpent, then He said to the woman, and then He said to the man. We're going to focus on this curse, and what it means, and why it's a gospel picture. Not just the fact that it's promised there, but why is it a gospel picture? Because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock? If you want to hear it more emphatic, cursed. You know, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and your food shall be dust for the rest of your life. I will put enmity, fear, hostility, separation, division, anger, evil between you and woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall, some texts say, be for your husband, be contrary to your husband. You shall seek after your husband. You shall seek to rule your husband. All these things are the same. But he shall rule over you. 
And to the man he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you. Now keep in mind there, he's not saying you shouldn't listen to your wife. He's saying you listen to your wife instead of me. You listen to the serpent instead of me. Get this. This is not instruction. This is narrative with extreme gravity behind it. And because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the world because of you. Cursed is the creation because of you. See why we've got to go to Romans 8 today? In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the dirt. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. And then verses 20 through the end we've already dealt with. And I told you I was coming back to these texts. God gives the picture of Christ. He gives the promise of Christ here in this text over in verse 15. That the seed of the woman, her, the virgin birth, Christ, will crush the head of the devil, even though the enemy will bite the heel of the son, and that is the death on the cross. That death is crush the work of the enemy. So now we have all of these curses. So let's ask ourselves, what is a curse? And, beloved, this is one of those things where we really have to get the magic eraser out and the bleach and the 409 and the every other type of stuff. And if you, you, know, if you, you like the, the non-toxic stuff, you can get the all-natural stuff. You can, you know, Honest Company. You can spray that in there. But we've got to clean out all this Hollywoodized garbage in our heads because when we think of curse, we automatically go to demonic. We go to the supernatural. We go to all these things. We go to this generational type thing. Well, I can't wash this off. Beloved, you've got to wash this thinking away from you. The simple reality of what God is doing here and what the Scripture teaches, especially in the Old Testament, the idea of a curse is a declaration against sin. Calling sin what it is. This is rebellion. God says, this is rebellion. I curse. It's like we stub our toe and we go, and they like Yosemite Sam. You know, we're cursing the pain. We're like that blasted pain, or we're cursing the thing that hit us, or we're cursing in our minds. It might not be that we use profanity or explicatives, but we create our own. We do it in our head. You know, we do that. So we curse it. We call it for what it is. This is terrible. This is awful. Good gracious. Ah, you know, we just say that it's bad. To curse, when God curses something, He's saying what it is. This is bad. He's calling it bad as opposed to good. He's calling it evil as opposed to righteous. He's calling it dark as opposed to light. So when God curses, He's saying it's bad. It's evil. It's dark. The word sin literally means to miss the target. To take a shot and never hear a ding. You never get the target. 
You're running a race. You go in the wrong direction. You never hit the finish line. You're running the wrong direction. Sin is, the target is, the fullness of all of God's glory and all of His righteousness. And beloved, since that day when they took that fruit, man has been on a different trajectory. And every good thing that they do and strive for, even in the commands of the Bible, are in the wrong direction. Without God's grace. Redemption and promises. Sin is to miss the mark. Here's a big way of looking at it. Sin is being anything but God as a human, as a living being. Anything we do, anything we desire, anything we strive for, anything we hope for, we're sinners, ergo we sin. It's not the other way around. We are guilty of Adam's sin long before we ever do anything. Sin. That's the first part of cursing, to declare it sin. The second part of a curse in the Old Testament, when something is cursed, is to show the consequences. So when God says, Cursed are you above all livestock, and I've given this example, I mean, snakes are feared. A lot of things are feared, but snakes, I mean, most people look at snakes throughout the ages because of this story as the embodiment of evil. So cursed. You're going to eat dirt. Is that, what snake, is that what a snake eats? No, but he's there on the ground. It's the lowest of creatures that crawls above the ground. And you got those that climb trees. And you got those that swim in the water. That's all other unholy abominations. I like snakes. I'm not scared of any snake unless that be bigger than me and in the water. Anything in the water. Tadpole, I'm scared of it. I don't want to be in the water. Can't handle it. But cursed are you. Now the snake did nothing wrong. The snake was an unwilling participant by the will of God who gave permission for the enemy, for Lucifer, to use the snake for his purposes and to speak through it. Angels don't have that type of power unless God grants them that. And we know that from the book of Job. We know that angels are created beings, just like people, but they're not people. They're ethereal beings, they're spiritual realm things. God uses them. The word angel even means messenger. They're, they're for God's purposes. And so God allowed Satan and purposed Satan and decreed Satan, which means the adversary, the enemy. Lucifer is his name. Allowed Lucifer to use the snake to speak to Eve. And the snake had no choice in it. It wasn't like the devil said, hey, any of you guys want to join the party? About to have a really good time here. These new creatures that everybody's looking at going, what is that? I'm going to show you just how frail they are. And all, you know, the cows are going, and then the unbeknownst to us, he could speak slithering, and the snake came up and said, I volunteer. Nope. There he was, and then all of a sudden, there he was doing the will of God, the bidding of the enemy for the purposes of God and redeeming His people, which is why the earth was created to begin with for the redemption of God's people. So, God looks at the serpent and says, you're cursed. The consequence of what has happened, 
you shall be on your belly. You shall be despised. Then speaking to the enemy, I'm going to show you what happens when my people, the people of my son, who is the one come through the virgin, and you, and your people, and your ideals and philosophies and religion, you're going to be at odds forever with them. And you're going to bite that kid on the heel and you're going to think you've won and he's going to come down off that cross and stomp you in the head. You see the imagery? You see the picture? The image of that? The picture of that? So God says the consequence of you being used, snake, is this. But the remedy is this. The remedy is Jesus Christ coming into the world and He will destroy what you've done. But you're cursed, snake. To the woman, he said, you're cursed. The consequence is, and listen carefully to this, I will surely multiply. Now, what is a billion three hundred and forty-seven million nine hundred fifteen thousand eleven hundred six divided by zero? I mean, multiplied by zero. Zero. Because in order for something to be multiplied, you have to have something to start with. So this isn't where the pain of childbirth comes from. This is why it's so bad. And you'll see there when by the sweat of your brow, Adam was already given charge to tend the garden that would, by the providence and promise and power of God, always produce the yield of life-giving fruit forever. All the rivers flowing in with fresh water forever. Always providing life for God's people forever in the presence of God in righteousness, clothed with Christ's presence in the cool of the day. But he still had to work. There was still going to be things to do. There was still going to be pruning. There was still going to be something to do. We don't have a list. We don't have the addendum of the gardening of Eden in the back. Thankfully, we don't, because we'd all go home and try to make our yards like that and say, we're God's gardeners. I mean, you know, we'd just... We'd find another idol. With the Hallelujah Diet, the Eden Gardens. Can you see it? Eden Landscaping Service. And the other ones would say, the Serpent Landscaping Service. What does he do? He says, you're going to have to work hard now. Eve, you're going to be able to... Adam and Eve, you're going to have children. It's not going to be the most pleasant experience in the world, but it's going to be my experience. Life is going to be my promise. All these things will work together. But now, because of this, you're cursed. The consequence of rebellion, that's what he means when it's cursed, is multiplying pain in childbirth. In pain. It doesn't mean what? It doesn't mean that it was not labor. It just means that it wasn't pain. Still hard. You shall bring forth children. And then all of a sudden now, you're going to want 
to rule over your husband, you're going to have, you're going to be at odds. What does he mean by that? You're going to be at odds. Your husband and you are one flesh. You're one person. You have, you have responsibility. You are the picture of Christ in the church. But now all of a sudden, because of the way things are, this man in all of his strength over you, his responsibility over you, his headship over you. And we understand that more in the marriage, and we've talked about that already. It's not the ruler, it's the what? It's the head, it's the leader, it's the first. And we need to be careful not to... Uh, you know, we need that magic eraser for that kind of junk too. We don't, we don't submit to our husband's wives except as unto Christ. We're not property, or you aren't property, except your husband is also your property. You see, one unto another, we're one. But there's this division, there's this problem, there's this curse. And then to Adam, in pain you shall be able to eat. In pain. Beloved, our work never produces produce. It never produces, it never yields the fullness of everything that it would yield in perfection because everything that we do, even if we complete it and fix it perfectly, the reason that we have to repair and redo and constantly work is because all of it is under the curse of sin. Otherwise, we brush our teeth once, never to brush them again. Put oil in our car, never to have a problem again. You know? We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have rain beating down on our roofs, the roofs to have to do them. We wouldn't have to weed our gardens. I mean, everything would just stay in a state of goodness. But, beloved, we can work all we want to work, and we get up the next day... And there's more work to do. I can't tell you how many brooms I've bought in my days. Brooms. I'm not a cheap broom guy. Can't get a cheap broom. Got to have a good broom. Because I want to work less and more effectively. And I want to be able to do the dust test on the floor when I'm finished. Brooms. But why do I keep having to buy brooms? Because it's still going to get dirt. You're still going to have dirt. You're still going to have cleaning to do. You're still going to have these things to do. Why? Because our work will not produce perfection. It may look good. It may be good. But it's not. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. You ever made bread from grain? That's a labor. And when Robin was pregnant with Grace, our second daughter, who's 21, she's in there grinding wheat with a little half-cup grinder, you know, and then kneading it at the table. I'm like, what is this woman making? I mean, this must be like the bread of life because she's given her life for this. An hour later, and she's crying and hurting and shoulders are falling over and so I go buy her a mixer, you know. 
We, we, we work together to figure out what device could help that work. Be so Think about it for a second. Technology makes our work easier. Imagine having to cut your grass without powered engines. I've got one of those. You know? And the grass gets above that, it won't cut it anymore. It just pushes it over. So you've got like seven hours in the summer after you cut it to start cutting it again. Especially if you have behavior, you might have seven minutes. You just have to get your children. That's why you have so many children. You just put one on the lawnmower and start it pushing. When they die, put the second one in there. Throw them out. Do another one. <laughs> They're the authorities. We had 12 children. That's why our yard's so groomed. Eden landscaping. Back to the points. By the sweat. You shall work the very dirt that you are. And it will not produce for you. You know, it's interesting, as we'll see next week, Cain got the same promise. As a matter of fact, Cain got it worse. Cain was told, not only are you going to have to work hard the land, but I'll never let it grow for you. Everything you touch is never going to produce you food. What did that mean for Cain? First market owner. <laughs> the first barterer. He couldn't produce anything to eat. He had to trade for it. He had to work for it. He had to do something else. So now we see this system of employment. It's not new. Capitalism is not new. Employeeism is not new. It's always been greed-driven. It's always been sinful. Capitalism is God's economy. No, it's not. God's economy is koinonia. What does that mean? All things in common. Ugh. Sounds like socialism to me. No, it's much different than that. It's willful. Let's be careful how we... Remember last week I talked about my freedoms? Let's be careful. It's hard, isn't it? So here we have these curses. This consequence of this rebellion. Missing God's essence. God is saying, now the world is cursed because of you. What's the ultimate end of it? Reconciliation. You're going to work this dust, and then we're going to put you back in the dust. You're going to die. But ultimately, the promise of life is Christ. So Christ, look at, look at this now. Christ, the God-man, is God Himself is going to come into the world through the labor pains of a woman under the curse. And if infants could talk, I don't know about you, I've seen five births. Well, excuse me, four births and a cesarean. I've seen it. This is trauma. This is horror. All you young people like to go see horror movies this time of year. Let me watch you watch a live birth. It would be terrible. Yeah. It would, it would be traumatic. Our farm kids, they understand all this. Here's the God of the universe going through the trauma of birth. It's traumatic for the child. And they're an unwilling participant. When the angel of the Lord doesn't walk around through this closet of souls, anybody want to get born today? They're like, Johnny, what's that? Where? 
Ha, sucker, got you. Could you imagine? And I know some psychologists and others have studied the idea of trying to find regression and take people back to their birth experience and all this kind of stuff. Nonsense, it doesn't work. But I mean, can you imagine being fully cognizant and fully wise and fully aware and just going through the birth experience as a, as a child? No! Here's God going through the experience. Here is His virgin mother going through the experience of child pain, birthing pain. God exposes Himself to the very curse. And the picture of that too, I mean, you think about Mary giving birth to the God-man who was subject to her as a parent, yet she was subject to Him as God. What are you doing, Jesus? we halfway home and you're still here. We had to come all the way back to get you. Don't you know, Mother, I'm supposed to be about the work of my Father's business? Son, let me tell you something. This, this wedding's going bad. They've run out of wine. This could ruin this family. Do something about it. Oh, dear woman, my time has not yet come. And what does he say? Hey, y'all, do whatever he says. That's John 2. And we see the work. Jesus and his humanity worked the earth. His father was not a farmer. He was a carpenter. So he was in the line of Cain, if you will, in employment. His daddy had to work. I say line of Cain, everybody goes, Ooh! no, you know what I mean. Folks, listen to what I'm saying. Find fault. He had to work. Had to sell furniture to buy food. Had to build porches or decks or whatever it might be. Whatever he had to do. Build a shed. I don't know. So they could sell it, so they could buy food, so they could eat, so they could buy sacrifices at the temple for their worship. Because they didn't have it. He made himself subject to it. And beloved, at the end of it all, the consequence of sin and rebellion, the curse brings death. But what caused the curse to begin with? Man working things out in his own Understanding. My ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. My word has gone forth, God would say, and this is the promise that I've given and this is what is going to happen and this is the consequences, the curse of your rebellion. This is the curse of your work. So see, the true nature of what sin is is man thinking that he can work to please God in his own efforts and power. Not resting in the promises of God's provision of life and sustenance. So now go to Romans 8. Let's put this in perspective as it relates to us as the believer. Because I mean, think about these folks listening to Moses as he wrote this and it was read and they're thinking, oh wow, they had the same idea that we had. Dumb Adam. 
If Adam had just not done that, it's not the point. The point is God is sovereign over that. The point is that God is gracious to His people. That even though we will always try to work to do our own thing, He is faithful to arrest us and snatch us out of this domain of darkness. See, the domain of darkness in the world is the work of man thinking that it's producing fruit. It's a blindness. And the irony behind that is that the serpent, Lucifer, promised sight, but really gave blindness. Because to see evil is to not see righteousness. Think about that for a second. Romans chapter 8. Paul suffering, the church suffering, these Gentiles. Christians, these Roman Gentile Christians were looking at their Jewish friends and neighbors and going, what in the world? How are we God's elect? We're not Jews. And how is it, what are we going to have to do? Are we going to have to work hard to catch up the work of Israel? Are we going to have to start going to temple? Are we going to have to start... See, these things were taught to them. That wasn't a poof all of a sudden. Regeneration doesn't give you all the distinctions of man-made religion. And people who claim that are as blind as a bat. Exegete it. Stop philosophizing. We look at the text, let the text speak out of itself instead of so much about it. Let the Word of God speak. These people were suffering not only in culture, not only in relationships and finances, they were suffering in their own minds. They were worrying about how they might be elect. And Paul, praise God, gives us Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We can skip 11, 12. We don't like being told what to do. Some Christians say, I don't need to be told what to do. <laughs> well, if you don't need to be told what to do, then you're still living in your own works righteousness. Because saying, I don't have to do anything God has told me to do because it is all of grace is true, but saying that is blindness to the experience of grace. What do I mean by that? That's to divide the Word of God and not receive the full counsel of it. And that's to say, by doing nothing, by not worrying about intimacy in the body, by not submitting to the Word of God, I am more righteous because I just sit in grace. Can you hear what I just said? I don't even know if I could repeat it without my stomach turning. Paul makes it very clear. Verse 1, chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? You cannot be lost, beloved. And we did not find Christ. He found us. He showed us. He saved us. He died for us. He rose for us. He promised His glory for us. The provision of the gospel. The reason it is called the good report 
God speak is because it is the declaration and the proclamation of what God has accomplished for His people. It began in the beginning of time of creation and continues to now in the promises of God. What we do in our flesh, even when we're born again, is we're constantly fighting the Spirit within us that says rest by trying to do or not do that which is equal to our confidence to try to muster our confidence before the Lord, which our confidence should be in Christ, not ourselves. So it's overly simple. We make it massively complex. And Paul begins there by being sure that the readers know they're not condemned. What's the context? They're having a lot of problems not following the law of Judaism and feeling confident in their salvation. Romans 9 gives a clear explanation of some of the questions that were begged out of the inquiry of the Romans. That, well, why is it then so many Jews are rejecting the gospel? Has God failed them? I mean, we know what it teaches. And Paul has already said, look, the law, (laughs) it's a death sentence. You want to follow the law? You want to find confidence and obedience? Go right ahead. That's contrary to the grace of God for you. So it's obvious that when we see the gospel and when we see the power of God in creating His people and all the means necessary and sufficiently in Christ for the redemption of His people, it's natural to then say, well, wow, I can continue to sin that grace may abound, but He prohibits it. Paul says it cannot be. Because that is an improper worship. It is an improper placed action because it flows out of selfishness, which is self-righteousness, which is legalism. Antinomianism and legalism are the same thing. I don't have to obey anything. Well, I have to obey everything. It's the same thing. It's what you do or don't do in an attempt to settle yourself before the Father. When the gospel is that he has settled the debt. He has settled the record. He has become the curse. She talks about that gospel in Romans 8. And he gets over there and he says, We're not debtors to the flesh, we're debtors to the spirit, and we're debtors to the Lord, and we're debtors to one another. We owe each other. We owe everything to Christ, yet we can never pay it. And in verse 18, well, Paul, he transitions. He says, the Spirit bears witness. In verse 16, verse 15, excuse me. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear. In other words, you didn't receive the slavery of, of being told what to do so much that you've got to work harder in order to be satisfied and confident in the Lord and His promises. His promises are enough. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Papa, Daddy. An endearing term. Not formally, Oh, Father, who art in heaven but Pops, Dad. That's what that text is. 
We cry out for our parents in despair. As children, we don't say, Oh, mother, please. Mom. Little children say, Mommy, Daddy, help me. This is our intimacy with the Father who has saved us in Christ alone. And it is a finished work. So we're children. If we're children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we'll suffer with Him, don't give in to the temptation of rejecting Him because they're suffering. Because the suffering is, is, part, of the, is part of the experience. It's part of the resting promise. Because we're going to be glorified with Him as He suffered and then glorified. We also are going to suffer and then be glorified. Then He says, For I consider, verse 18, I had to get there so we'd understand what that for was for. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. So we need to stop focusing on the suffering and look for the glory. We need to stop complaining and bickering and arguing and dividing and debating and talking and dealing with everything that's wrong in the world. And when we say what's wrong, we say nothing. For my God reigns and He sits on high glorified, bringing us to Himself. So hallelujah, let go. That's what we do. Not worth comparing to the glory that's revealed for us. For the creation, going back to Genesis 3, waits. Now, I want you to think about this. The tree and the birds and the grass outside. This is personification. That means it's putting a personality to a non-person. I mean, just saying something it's like this microphone, and stuff, I start giving it attributes and actions and illustrating something about this microphone as if it were alive with a personality, personification. So here we go. Creation waits. What is it doing? Eager longing. You ever longed for something? You ever longed for the day to be over? You ever longed for the vacation to get here? You ever longed for Friday if you're off on the weekends? You ever long for the day when your bones would stop hurting or your children would come home to visit or, you know, whatever it might be. Long for the day this way. What do we do? We typically look at the negative things in our lives and we look forward to the time they're done or we're seeing something else. Longing for something else. So the creation is longing for something. Eagerly. What? For our glorification. Creation is longing for the restoration of the sons of God. Further explanation, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to the uselessness, to futility, not willingly. Snake, dirt, except hold up Adam and Eve. Well, you were the platform on which you, they stood, so cursed be you. Well, maybe the dirt had some responsibility because Adam indeed was dirt. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. God cursed it. Why? In hope... This is the punchline of the whole message, beloved. I pray you see it, because I don't know that I can explain it better than Paul. In hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I got chills running up my body and I want to break dance, but I'd probably hurt something. God cursed the world in order for its redemption to be a picture of the redemption of His people in Christ. He came to be subject to the curse, though He was not owed the curse. Two Sundays ago, we reminded ourselves of Romans 6, for the due payment of rebellion, the due payment of man's work, is what? Death. Well, no, it says the wages of sin. That's what I said. The due payment of man's work is death. The wage of sin is the payment of man's work. Man thought they could work better wisdom than God's promises. They fell into understanding sin. They fell into darkness. Then they went into the working Workings, uh, uh, they went to the factory and they built themselves a cover for their own shame and it was unworthy. Then God in shadow showed that it was the death of an animal to cover their righteousness as a picture of the death of Jesus Christ. God Himself in the flesh being subject to the curse of creation, being subject to the wage that He never earned because we deserve the full payment once for all and forever and He took it. So, how in the world is reconciliation so good? So perfect. Listen to verse 22 we continue to say about the creation groaning together. The whole creation has been groaning together. I love this. As if in the pains of childbirth till now. Mothers in the room in childbirth. Horrible experience. Scary experience, evil experience, ebb and flow. Even with modern advances in technology, we still can't get rid of all of the pain and the work and the labor. Yet at the birth of that child, all those experiences flush away. Creation in labor. birth. How we wait as the trees do without looking at the negative. By looking at the promise. Looking at the promise. Why is the promise so powerful? God created the world and showed His promises in it. He said there is a light that will rule the day and a light that will rule the night. Paul says in Colossians that God has separated us, snatched us out of the domain of darkness, and qualified us to be the inheritance, to have the inheritance with the saints. In light, in revelation, in righteousness. And that's not just my assumption. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit inwardly grown as we eagerly await as adoption for adoption as sons because we are the sons and the daughters of God which is the redemption of our bodies. We are longing for the day when God will bring us to 
face of glory. For in this hope we are saved. Remember the introduction of my sermon today? Faith looks to that which is not tangible, touchable, seeable, holdable, graspable. So what are the words I can put in there? Hope. This faith in the promise of God's redemption in Christ Jesus who made Himself a curse so that we would be free of it. Is how, is in what, through and how we are saved. Hope. Who is the hope? Jesus Christ is our hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees, who longs for what he has, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's the kicker. There's the kicker. And beloved, that, that, that's a segue right into Genesis 4. Abel and Cain working. They had to work to live, and part of that work is worship. The very nature of the work commanded of Adam before the fall was worship. So your job is an act of worship. Working as unto the Lord. You ain't working for the boss man. You ain't working for yourself. And everything that we have, it's not because we worked hard. It's because God granted it so. That'd be a Wednesday night in a couple of weeks. So we wait with patience. Beloved, patience is not seeking our own answers. It's not seeking our own way. It's not seeking our own understanding. Patience rests and sits. Not gleaning, not working, not knitting together other opportunities, not trying to figure out other ways in which we can understand things. Beloved, patient rest does not labor. Patient rest works in faith. What must we be doing to be doing the work of God? They asked Jesus, this is the work of God, that you are believing in the one whom He has sent. Our work is hard and not fruitful. And it will never bring the right produce of life or the promise of life. But we will always be tempted to think that our work and our worship are acceptable until we're given the sight and then the reminder to see that God alone will make us acceptable. So then what we do in response to that acceptance, to that adoption, to that glory, to that promise, to that power is acceptable. Not to our credit, but to our thanksgiving. As an act of worship, as a sacrifice. Just like the flower, if you couldn't afford a dove, if you couldn't afford an animal, just like the sack of flour was acceptable because it wasn't the flower or the dove or the lamb that satisfied God's wrath. It was Christ. And those things pointed to Him. When I gave flour, when I built a table as a, as a carpenter and I sold it to buy flour to take to the temple and I gave that flour, that flour was of no value to God. That flower represented me resting in the promise of God to satisfy Himself in the sacrifice that He would provide for Himself. Genesis 22. If we want to keep working, get it all down to the 
nice and pretties, to get it all down to the, to the, to the depths of things. Beloved, we can only expect the paycheck to be death in the end. So we ultimately need to see that this rebellion is failure to rest in the promises of God. And by His power, by His grace alone, He has granted us this great promise. And He's given us the ability to see it and to hold fast to it. Christ. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word and for the truth that You've given us. Father, there are a lot of things in this text. There are a lot of things in my head that I could just go on and on and on. But what You've tried to show us is very simple. You are all we need. Teach us who You are according to Your Word. Teach us the Gospel according to Your Word. Lord, You've promised to teach Your people. And Lord, when we stray off when we're tossed to and fro, help us to invite one another into our lives in a way where we can be an encourager. Lord, where we can be teachers one to another to show the truth. And let us celebrate with each other when the truth is revealed. Keep us from our pride and humble us before You. Not in fear, Father, humble us before You in thanksgiving. And we pray these things in Christ. Amen. Thank you, church.